Good evening. Marjorie Taylor Greene says Trump owns the GOP. Reviving the stock transfer tax, we speak with consumer advocate Ralph Nader. Is the United States support for the war in Yemen, Yemen coming to an end? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, February 5th, 2021. President Joe Biden laid out his case for moving fast to pass a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill, even if it's without Republican support. I'm going to act. I'm going to act fast. I'd like to be uh, I'd like to be doing it with the support of Republicans. I've met with Republicans There's some really fine people want to get something done, but they're just not willing to go as far as I think we have to go. I've told both Republicans and Democrats That's my preference to work together. But if I have to choose between getting help right now to Americans who are hurting so badly and getting bogged down in a lengthy negotiation or compromising on a bill that's that's up to the crisis, that's an easy choice. I'm going to help the American people who are hurting now. The government's jobs report for January shows hiring has stalled and return to full employment may be delayed for years. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris cast her first tie-breaking vote in the Senate early this morning to pass a COVID relief plan through the chamber without Republican support. That came as Ohio Democrat Sherrod Brown upbraided Kentucky Republican Rand Paul for not wearing a mask. The senator from Kentucky. I ask you have order, please. I ask unanimous consent that the subsequent votes be 10 minutes in duration. Is there objection? Mr. President, reserving the right to object, I would like to ask Senator Paul in front of everybody to start wearing a mask on the Senate floor like the entire staff does all the time, particularly the staff that I appreciate now, the presiding officer wearing a mask, but I wish Senator Paul would show the respect to his colleagues to wear a mask when he's on the Senate floor walking around and speaking. I res- I, I, uh, is, is there objection I, I to the request? My objection. News reports from Florida show hundreds of maskless shoppers in a public department store, a permanent grocery store owned by a Trump supporter who denied the COVID pandemic even exists. The disconnect in county in a country divided by race and other social issues facing a rebellion by far right wing and fascist groups led to last night's vote by the Democratic controlled House to strip Republican member Marjorie Taylor Greene of her assignments on the budget and education committees. The Georgia Republican was a strong supporter of the shadowy QAnon conspiracy theory, among others, and was accused of advocating violent assaults against her colleagues. Taylor Green was defiant today, saying she apologized, was attacked for her free speech, and a victim of socialists, all in one speech. She also had this to say about former President Trump. Record number of Republicans voted for President Trump. Do you want to know why? It's because they loved his policies. They loved his fight. They love the fact that for once we had a president that stood up for America, stood up for American businesses, and remembered the forgotten man. He was a president that didn't care about your skin color because God created us all equal, and thank God our Constitution affirms that. He was a president that wanted every single person to achieve, and that's why we supported him. That's why I've always supported him. And I want to tell you, Republican voters support him still the party is his it doesn't belong to anybody else this impeachment trial that's going to happen next week is a circus it's a circus that allows media companies to get lots of clicks lots of views and sell ad dollars and you know what that's pretty disgusting too 
Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier today. Besides economics, President Biden is apparently making big changes in American foreign policy. Yesterday, the president said it's time to force a peace agreement in Yemen, where a civil war and intervention by Saudi Arabia and the United States has created a human rights disaster. We're also stepping up our diplomacy to end the war in Yemen, a war which has created humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. I've asked my Middle East team to ensure our support for the United Nations-led initiative to impose a ceasefire, open humanitarian challenges, and restore long, dormant peace talks. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we're ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. At the same time, Saudi Arabia faces missile attacks, UAV strikes, and other threats from Iranian-supplied forces in multiple countries. We're going to continue to support and help Saudi Arabia defend its sovereignty and its territorial integrity and its people. President Biden, Yemeni American activist Shireen Al-Ademi is assistant professor of education at Michigan State University. She says Biden's position is similar to the Obama policy that began the war. I was ready to cheer it when we heard the announcement, uh, but then when Biden actually made his speech and uh, began to qualify it with certain words like the offensive part of the role um, that he said he was going to still continue to defend Saudi Arabian borders and territories, he said he was going to stop relevant military arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Those things are concerning to me because this echoes some of the language that Obama used to enter this war in the first place, defending Saudi Arabian territory from Iran-backed forces. I don't want us to be back to where we were six years ago in the name of defending Saudi territory. The U.S. is interested in Yemen because of its strategic location. It controls Bab el-Mandeb Strait. 6.2 million barrels of oil travel per day through Yemen to Europe and to Asia. And it's oil and oil products. And so it's hugely important for Saudi Arabia, whose oil travels through that, that strait, and the U.S., who depends on, on oil still, to have a government in Yemen that is friendly to the U.S. and friendly to Saudi Arabia. What they saw in 2014 was a rise of the Houthis, who are extremely unfriendly to both Saudi Arabia and the U.S. This is what led us to this war. This intervention is trying to reinstate Saudi and U.S. interests in Yemen. They failed. Iran is not in Yemen. We would have seen evidence of it in six years. We don't have concrete evidence that Iran is a major player here. Um, you know, they said they're trying to defend Saudi borders from Houthi missiles. But is this something that could be ramped down or is this the beginning of something that could grow into a bigger conflict? What we're seeing is unrelentless U.S. intervention in the region, and now Saudi and UAE interventions in the region as well. They don't have a respect for people's sovereignty, whether it's in Libya or Syria or Yemen. It's this desire to meddle in other people's countries, to ruin these countries in the process, and to try to walk away from it like nothing happened. You don't have that. You know, we've seen it in Afghanistan, and it's an ongoing war. You can't intervene in a country's local affairs and not expect it to drag on, not expect it to turn out really badly but we don't seem to learn from these lessons you know? the u.s manufactures consent in the u.s around the idea that if we're not there it'll be another 9-11 it's based on a very racist view of these countries and these people right like they're not capable of governing themselves that they will just turn to violence for no reason right in the last six years 
the coalition that we're supporting, the Saudi-led coalition, has overtly worked with al-Qaeda forces, have enabled al-Qaeda forces in Yemen. And so if we're really claiming to want to not work with terrorists, then why are we working with terrorists? And at the end, Yemenis have suffered the most from terrorists like al-Qaeda and ISIS in Yemen. Yet these groups have been empowered, empowered by the Saudi-led coalition. And frankly, you know, their um, ideologies are drawn from Saudi Arabia to begin with, but we consider Saudi Arabia one of our biggest allies in the region. So there is this inconsistent approach that's in the end based on maintaining geopolitical interests, maintaining strategic locations, benefiting from weapon sales, and it has nothing to do with the things that they really talk about to try to sell these wars to people. What I expect is for people to just step away for the Biden administration to stop all forms of support, intelligence sharing, logistics, training, arms deals, no qualifiers, nothing, and to just walk away from Yemen and in fact not even play a role in the peace process because they haven't earned the right to talk about peace in a country that they've destroyed. Shireen Al-Ademi is Assistant Professor of Education at Michigan State University. Biden also announced yesterday he'll be signing the only nuclear weapons treaty still in effect with Russia. The New START treaty holds both countries to 1,550 nuclear warheads each, more than enough to destroy civilization. The United States and Russia agreed to extend the New START treaty for five years to preserve the only remaining treaty between our countries safeguarding nuclear stability. At the same time, I made it clear to President Putin in a manner very different from my predecessor that the days of the United States rolling over in the face of Russia's aggressive actions, interfering with our elections, cyber attacks, poisoning its citizens are over. We will not hesitate to raise the cost on Russia and defend our vital interest and our people. And we will be more effective in dealing with Russia when we work in coalition and coordination with other like-minded partners. The politically motivated jailing of Alexei Navalny and the Russian efforts to suppress freedom of expression and peaceful assembly are a matter of deep concern to us and the international community. Mr. Navalny, like all Russian citizens, is entitled to his rights under the Russian Constitution. He's been targeted, targeted for exposing corruption. He should be released immediately and without condition. Biden also ordered an end to all troop withdrawals from Germany that were ordered by President Trump earlier in his um, uh, time in office. Biden also announced his COVID plan centered on the vaccine. It puts $160 billion into our national COVID-19 strategy, which includes more money for manufacturing, distribution, and setting up of vaccine sites, everything that's needed to get the vaccines into people's arms. There's simply nothing more important than us getting the resources we need to vaccinate the people in this country. President Joe Biden, the effect of the COVID pandemic on the national economy has been devastating. New York State alone is facing a $16 billion deficit, with, but with uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, admitting uh, in the budget that he'll be releasing in just a few weeks. Uh, it'll be full of painful cuts, really, really painful cuts. One way to solve the state and city's budget problem is a tax on financial transactions, a stock transfer tax. It doesn't have to be passed. The stock transfer tax doesn't have to actually really be passed because it already exists. 
But since Hugh Carey was governor, remember him, in the early 1980s, over $300 billion collected by the state in its stock transfer tax that already existed has been rebated back to Wall Street. This week, a Wall Street trade group wrote a letter to Cuomo outlining their absolute opposition to a return to collecting the tax and making an old threat to move out of New York for good. A researcher, uh, pardon me, a researcher who investigates corporate tax dodgers is James Henry. What happened this week was that Wall Street, first of all, put together a letter of 27 different institutions, including the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ Exchange, and wrote to Governor Cuomo threatening to leave. They should be called Walk Street. If that's a bluff. It would cost billions of dollars, much more. It would cost much more for them to leave and try to go to Texas. There's a national effort at the Biden administration level to join with Europe in having a global financial transactions tax at the level of 0.1% of stock market trades. And that tax would be twice the New York uh, level, the existing rebate. The stock exchange moves on day one. Day two, they wake up and they find that Texas is also subject to an even higher tax at the federal level. What's interesting is that they have really been pulling out the stops this week as the New York Assembly and the Senate go back into budget conferencing and are worrying about formulating a budget by March. This is really coming to a head right now. The governor is running scared because he doesn't want to alienate his supporters on Wall Street. Yeah, but I think what you've got here is a really interesting dynamic between the state level, where the proposal is simply to stop rebating the tax, and the federal effort, which will come on pretty soon to pass a national financial transactions tax. Now there's an effort in the EU to tax European exchanges at a rate that is twice the New York level. Wall Street is pulling on all the stops, put pressure to oppose this thing, using the same old bogus arguments they've done in the past. Tax justice activist James Henry, a consumer advocate who supports the stock transfer tax, is well known to WBAI listeners. Ralph Nader says Wall Street is a casino and the winners are greedy. They don't want to contribute their small share. And it's even worse than that, Paul. They're not even paying it. They pass it on to the shareholders, and most of them are wealthy because the shareholders who pay most of this five cents out of every hundred dollars in sales tax fraction of 1% are the heaviest traders, the traders who trade in derivatives, huge volume, they trade more frequently. And for them to say, well, it's going to hurt the pension funds. Well, the pension funds are not supposed to be day trading or regular trading. They're supposed to trade in long-term investments, Warren Buffett style. And I never thought Wall Street greed would go this far. It's a progressive sales tax, to be sure. It strikes at the wealthiest and most frequent investors. But just consider people listening to this program. Now, you go into a store or you buy online and you can pay up to 8% sales tax. You've got a state sales tax, the New York City sales tax, and you pay it for buying necessities. These Wall Street speculators, these Las Vegas East type gamblers, they don't want to pay a fraction of 1% sales tax. The European Union is about to pass a financial transaction tax that's twice as high. It's still under 1%, but it's twice as high as the stock transfer tax. That is, by the way, since 1982, when they stopped collecting it in terms of the New York State, they started collecting it and rebating it electronically every day. 
So there are estimates by New York State legislators that as much as 30 to $40 million a day is collected by New York State from these Wall Street brokers and then rebated, refunded immediately. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like this. You don't even have to pass a new tax. You just have to have Governor Andrew Cuomo keep the money that he's collecting every day. It may total as much as the entire state budget deficit. That's how important it is for WBAI to really make this an across-the-board drive. The refrain is basically, they'll leave New York, we'll lose this industry if we do this. There are ways to pass legislation to make sure that they can't have it both ways if they make a move like that. The European Union is solving the problem. The more nations all over the world, Japan already has one. England has a version of one. It's a very, very important way to make the rich pay a few cents to support the public services and the necessities of the people, especially ones who are down and out and desperate in a COVID-19 period. In London, where they do transfers similar to the United States, almost as big, they're just as into this whole game of playing the stock roulette wheel. Why are they amenable? And in this country, which has so much need right now, it's so difficult to get it. Two reasons. You have a Governor Cuomo and a Mayor de Blasio that's terrified for any type of equal responsibility imposed on Wall Street. They basically have terrified themselves into paralysis politically. And the second reason is there aren't enough WBAIs around. Why isn't the New York Times reporting this? This is a tremendously important subject for New York State. They have a business page with many pages. Why don't they report it? Cuomo's going to start making his cuts next month. They're going to be draconian. He said it. But he's more willing to legalize sports gambling, which he says will raise $500 million, than he is to keep a tax that he's already collecting on the Wall Street gamblers that is massively greater in revenue. So are you uh, pleased, happy, or uh, relieved that Donald Trump lost the election? Are we relieved that a serial liar, a serial bigot, a serial lawbreaker, a serial constitutional violator, a serial ignoramus, a serial egomaniacal, unstable person is no longer in the White House? I guess so. Very good. What do you think of the new guy so far? He's got an easy act to follow. <laughs> Consumer advocate Ralph Nader. And the Ralph Nader Show is heard at 6 a.m. Saturday mornings on WBAI and can be accessed on our website at WBAI.org. But even progressive economists say there's no easy fix to the state's economic problems. Todd Yarbrough is an assistant professor of economics at Pace University in New York City. He says Governor Cuomo's plans for gambling taxes to legalize and tax pod and the stock transfer tax share a big problem. They are solutions that bypass the progressive income tax. One of the big um, issues with uh, a lot of tax policy nowadays, especially tax policy that's meant to generate, let's say, particular revenue. So like, let's say, let's take the marijuana tax. They say, well, we're going to tax marijuana. We're going to generate this amount of revenue. Politicians, policymakers pretty consistently overestimate the amount of revenue that they typically collect. And if you actually look at a lot of the marijuana legalizations, which is something that I think makes a lot of economic sense, both from not having to spend a lot of public money on, on locking people up, as you mentioned, but also just from the perspective that, you know, it is this sort of business opportunity with some potential 
potential tax revenue uh, benefits. Absolutely. But politicians, anytime when you sort of set policy, we're going to raise a certain amount of revenue, you kind of run that particular risk. I think with both New York and New York City, one of the issues at hand with policymakers is just the sheer size. It's a big state. It's a big city running those budgets and coming up with sustainable budgets that will make impact, future impacts, it's a very difficult thing to do. And so what ends up happening is you sort of have these budgets that end up creating these budget holes, deficits, and then politicians come along and they say, well, tax marijuana and that will solve the revenue problem. And it may be fill some of the gap. Financial transactions tax is something that is often put forward as a tax, not only to generate revenue, but also the proponents of such a tax also see it as a bit of a progressive policy in the sense that it's a bit redistributive. I think that in lieu of more traditional forms of, say, progressive taxation, just higher income taxes, this is the sort of outcome of that, is that politicians start looking for those other places where we could maybe make the tax system more progressive. And that financial transactions tax is a way for people to do that. It becomes a popular policy, primarily the sort of political left. And it would certainly have its revenue benefits if it was to be implemented, should be done in a very cautious way, because financial transactions are very important to the New York City economy specifically, and any major distortions into that could potentially be problematic. I'm not suggesting that a financial transactions tax would necessarily be a bad thing. It would be something I think that the proponents of it are a little bit gung-ho about it, and they perhaps don't recognize the certain negatives of it. And then those who also would be very much against such a tax probably don't recognize there are some benefits. So it's a little bit kind of a middle-of-the-road issue. They say to each other, you want to die when a Republican's in power. You don't want to die when a (laughs) Democrat's in power because you want to pass over more money to your next generation. What happened to the days when, for patriotic purposes, whether it was a war or a COVID epidemic, you raised the taxes? There was a certain point, primarily in the 80s and with Reaganomics, where the idea of taxation really became demonized. The government is kind of taking your money and then doing things you wouldn't want done with it. There's a certain public relations problem with taxation. People aren't, I don't think, being sold on the idea that their tax money is going to do good things. They really, there's a focus on the things that money is spent in what they believe is a poor way. And sometimes the money is certainly spent in a poor way. Um, But if you look at what the U.S. has been able to do on education or technology, or the, you know, these sorts of social improvements, infrastructure, for example. The benefits of taxation are fairly clear, but I think that it, there's a public relations issue. It's just not a popular idea. For the last 20, 30 years, we've been cutting the IRS budget and cutting the IRS budget, relatively speaking, and now the IRS is barely able to do much of any sort of investigatory work on the tax evasion. We actually lose out on billions of dollars in tax revenue every year simply because the IRS is not staffed. Todd Yarbrough is an assistant professor of economics at Pace University in New York City. And finally, two Senate Democrats are facing criticism for voting to defy President Biden and overrule his decision to kill the Keystone XL oil pipeline before later voting to reverse themselves. Senators John Tester of Montana and Joe Manchin of West Virginia initially voted for a Republican amendment that would have put support for the pipeline in the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill that 
that Democrats are drafting under budget reconciliation. Their votes meant the amendment passed 52 to 48 just before midnight, threatening to reverse Biden's decision last month to end construction of the pipeline from Canada, citing environmental concerns. But before final passage, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer introduced an amendment that removed the Keystone XL provision and two others, including an amendment from Senator Mike Braun of Indiana that was approved 5743, preemptively opposing any ban on fracking. Tester and Manchin supported the Schumer amendment, undoing their earlier votes in favor of the pipeline. Vice President Kamala Harris supported Democrats on Schumer's amendment, which had tied 50-50, reflecting the even partisan division. Harris did not vote in most other 50-50 votes on amendments, which were considered to have failed. Senator Steve Daines, Republican of Montana, sponsored the Keystone Pipeline Amendment and hammered his flip-flopping colleagues, that's what he called them, early this morning while the American people were asleep. He said Senate Democrats chose to flip-flop on their support for my Keystone XL Pipeline Amendment, as well as Senator Braun's amendment to support fracking. And that's some of the news for Friday, February 5th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.